Let's talk about talk, it. Talk, talk, talk. Let's go deep. We all have something to share. No share with Dr. Dave. What is the importance of belonging? And why do we all need to belong somewhere? It is built into our human nature. Learn how the powerful philosophy of Ubuntu helps to deliver a simple roadmap to building positive teams and relationships, improving engagement and performance. Get your copy of Belonging and Healing, Creating Awesomeness for Yourself and Others by Dr. Dave Cornelius on Amazon.com. I'll just go right ahead and introduce uh, the speaker for today. And this is Adrienne Galori. And Adrienne is an expert in human-centered design thinking, strategy, facilitation, and generative uh, user experience research. She specializes in identifying short and long-term research needs and refining problems, statements, workshops, facilitation, and aligning stakeholders. Um, Before returning to usability sciences as a director of uh, design thinking in 2019, Adrienne uh, gained a wealth of experience as a human center factor engineer, factors engineer at Server Corporations, a senior lead user research and design thinking specialist at AT AT&T and an innovation researcher for Southwest Airlines. Adrienne is also a co-founder and program director of Dallas Black UX and an adjunct professor at the University of Texas in Arlington. So Adrienne, it's a pleasure to host you today and please take it away. Perfect, thank you so much. Um, So y'all, I do a lot of moving around, so I'm gonna go off camera so I can present. Uh, Let's see. Okay. It's just easier for me. Um, I think we are here. Can y'all hear that sound? Yes, for y'all. Perfect. Okay, we'll need that later. Okay. Uh, And here we go. Okay. So, um, and are you seeing my design thinking slides? Yes, we are. Perfect. Thank you so much. Um, So first, let me stop and say thank you um, for hosting this event and inviting me to speak. Um, For those of you who know me, I absolutely love everything about design thinking, specific research, um, and look forward to these types of conversations. I'm especially excited about this one today because Um, If I need partners in crime, it would be people in agile development, product owners, product managers um, who can help UX researchers and UX professionals like myself fight the good fight. A little bit more about me. Um, I have a, I'm originally from Houston, so shout out to Houston, Um, and moved to Dallas to go to UT Dallas um, and worked on my degree there. Let's see, hold on, get my screen situated. Okay, so at UT Dallas, I thought I wanted to go into finance, decided that no, I wasn't gonna stay in school another year, changed my major to interdisciplinary studies, which is essentially how to become a teacher. So, you know, fast forward, that worked out for me. Um, I have an MBA in HR, which I thought up until a couple of years ago was completely useless. 
except to have those letters behind my name um, today. That's absolutely a huge part of my job. I have a 13 year old son, y'all, who is now taller than me and growing hair on his face and thinks he knows everything. And then I have a uh, English bulldog who essentially runs my house. Um, a few years ago, going on four years now, um, I created an organization called Dallas Black UX. So when I tell you I live this life every day, I absolutely do. Um, Dallas Black UX was originally created to be a networking space, a mentoring space, and an education space, a lot like Agile for Humanity, um, for people of color in um, design. Um, I think I had been in research maybe eight years before I worked with my first black designer ever. Um, and for the most part, everywhere I worked, I was the only one. So it was important to me to be able to connect us together as well as give the people coming in after us the space to learn and grow and not have to make the same mistakes we did. Um, in my free time, whatever that is, I am coach. Um, women, minorities, UX professionals um, on one, being comfortable in their own skin, two, feeling good about the decisions they make, and three, having a strategy for their lives. And then lastly, um, I teach design thinking in the School of Art and Art History, uh, which is an interesting place for it to be um, at University of Texas, Arlington. Um, that's all the stuff that I do for fun in my day job, the people who actually pay me. Um, I am the COO. I run a user research firm. Um, specifically, I manage all of research operations. I also conduct research and am in charge of brand awareness. Um, the company itself is pretty cool. Been around for over 30 years. I think we're coming up on 35 years. Um, all we do is user research. I don't design. We don't develop. We don't do anything. We just become a place for you to check facts and learn and grow. Okay. All right. So before I get into it, here is my disclaimer. Um, I have been in user research now for about 20 years. I have done research in a lot of different places. I have earned, in my opinion, the right to be brutally honest. And I find it my duty to help everybody grow. So what does that look like? I may say things that you don't like. I may say things that you disagree with. I may um, not add enough sugar to how I tell the story and that's okay, right? I don't do it to be mean to anybody. It absolutely comes from a place of love, but I like to let people know that that's coming, okay? <laughs> All right, so let's talk about design thinking. Design thinking is a framework for problem solving and creativity. I know over the last few years, it has it comes across as something else that we have to do now, right? Something else that we have to learn. And I think we're coming away from the essentials of what design thinking is, and it's how we solve problems. Um, it is used efficiently for identifying the root cause of a problem, right? A lot of times when you are um, working in business or even thinking about things in your own personal life, you're trying to solve a symptom of a problem, right? Without thinking, where did this come from? Why does this exist? And what would I do if this didn't exist at all? Okay. Um, it also helps us get out of our own heads and bypass our assumptions or validate, invalidate our assumptions. And we'll get into that a lot here in a bit. 
um, it helps us get out of our own heads um, and in terms of uh, ideation. Um, I teach my students and they will tell you this on contact. Um, when we typically do brainstorming or ideation, your first two or three ideas are trash, okay? They're not gonna be good ideas. And we'll talk about why, but it helps us get to a point where they do end up being good ideas. And then lastly, it is used to design experiences and create experiences that people actually need, not just the cool techie stuff that we wanna do that we geek out over. So for some of you, if you've ever, Google design thinking, you've probably seen something like this, okay? When I teach, I use something like this. All of them are the same, um, but they kind of, they rework kind of the design of that to be uh, more in line with the audience. So um, it starts with empathizing. Empathizing is not just recognizing somebody else's problem or recognizing and appreciating the things other people are going through, right? That's sympathy. Empathy is saying, not only do I hear your story, but I care and I love you enough to help you fix it, okay? Um, so what this looks like in real life, let's say you're driving up the highway and on the opposite side of the highway, you see somebody with a flat tire. You see them with a flat tire and you're on your way to work. Sympathy is, you know what? I really hate that that person has a flat tire. I feel really bad for them, but you take, you keep going to work. Empathy is saying, you know what? I might be a little bit late, but I'm not gonna let that lady stand over there with a flat tire. So let me go help, okay? That is the difference. And it's actually a mandate. Um, the next step to this is defining you know, when we get into problem solving, the hardest part is where do we start? You know, there are probably a lot of things related to that problem. You probably see a lot of symptoms related to that problem. So how do you even know where to begin? Well, in design thinking, you take time to actually do that. Let's sit and let's think, what are the issues? What do they look like? How are we impacted? And then what parts of this can we change or make better? Um, to improve that experience and will have the most value and impact. Uh, the third step in this is ideation or brainstorming. So again, I will say this several times over, ideation and brainstorming is not just saying, going with your first idea or your second or even your third, right? It's not sitting in a room, just coming up with stuff by yourself. They might be good ideas, but are they your best? No, right? And oftentimes they're trash. They're good places to start, but you need experiences from other people. You need input from other people. You need to iterate those things and make them gradually better. And that's how you get to your best work. The fourth step is prototyping. You know, at the end of the day, most of us are makers, okay? We make something um, and design thinking is the same experience. So you prototype it, you make a version of it. You make something similar so that people that you're communicating with or trying to design for get a sense of what you're making so they can poke holes in it, okay? Um, a few years ago, I went to London. That's why I was happy to see you on here. I went to London and I went to Harry Potter World. And it in itself is a true experience. But in one of the rooms, you walk in and you get to see the evolution of this movie, okay? So all of the movies start the same way. It's an idea, it's a sketch, it's a lot of sketches. 
and people are gradually adding to and they're making changes. And then after that, then they go to start uh, fabricating, making small models, okay? And these models get bigger and bigger. And every time they change it, they do something different because of other things that they've learned. Eventually, that becomes the movie that you see. I pause there because prototyping seems to be one of those pieces that because we never see it, we don't think about it. We try not, we don't think to include it in our own process. So prototyping is one of those things that has to happen just so you can have something to kick the tires on, okay? And then lastly, testing. Testing, testing, testing. Um, testing is, I've made something, I've created something, I have an idea, I'm ready to talk about it. Let me now share it with the people that I designed it for to make sure it works for them, okay? We can have all the best intentions in the world, but if what we made is not useful, is not helpful, is adding frustration to their lives, is causing them rework or distrust, then we failed, okay? But we won't know that until we give it to them. All right, so uh, problem solving essentially is grounded in understanding the humans we design things for. I use that word very intentionally um, because when we are in our own space, it's easy to forget that this website, this application, this store that you're designing is for an actual person, an actual person who has frustrations, who is sad, who is sick, who may or may not be able to see, who may or may not feel good that day, who may be under a lot of stress, who may be on their way to vacation and are not thinking about this thing at all. We're designing for humans. So if we get that wrong, then we are impacting humans, okay? Not users, not customers, not things, not bots, actual people. Design thinking itself is used in a variety of ways. Product development, of course, social impacts, how are we going to help and grow each other? And then lastly, innovation. How do we get into new spaces or make old things better? It comes in, I call them flavors. Um, there are different methods when you Google design thinking today. You have the tried and true IBM method, um, which is what a lot of companies are taking at an enterprise level. You have uh, Google Ventures Sprint, which is everything in the IBM handbook, but let's do it super fast, right? Um, they say five days, I question that. And then over on the right, you have the IDEO method, which is um, come, came out of Stanford and has taken the approach that it's not enough for companies to do these processes. We should teach people how to do these processes and we should make them a part of our everyday lives. So I have to start with what design thinking is not. I say that because there are a lot of people, there are, you could Google criticisms of design thinking and come up with, I don't know, I lost count how many articles, right? And part of that is because a lot of people are doing it wrong. Okay, so let's talk about what design thinking is not. So design thinking is absolutely positively not a new concept, 
Okay. I guarantee you every soda, every snack, every television show, um, every bicycle, every vacuum cleaner, each car, every one that you've ever been in has been design thought. Okay. I say that because there was a problem. Somebody said, how do we fix it? They tried some things. Some of them worked, some of them didn't. They went back to the drawing board, did it again. Hey, you know what? I don't know how to make X, Y, and Z happen. They reached out. They found somebody who's a specialist in that area. They came together. They made something better. This is not a new concept, okay? The name has changed a lot. The, the platform or the structure around it is a little bit clearer, but the concept itself is no different than any other type of evolution or innovation that we've experienced in the past. Um, design thinking is definitely not a silver bullet, okay? You can't just say, hey, I'm gonna fix everything in my company by having a single design thinking session, okay? Um, we won't be able to fix maybe even just one page of your process by just one design thinking effort, okay? Um, part of this is because a lot like Agile, right? We can change all these processes for the business, but if the business does not change, then we're back at square one, okay? I also use the analogy. I can be a pitcher and I can throw you a ball, but if you don't hit it, okay? then we failed. Next, it's not one size fits all. So um, I believe that we can use design thinking at an enterprise level. We can use it for small business. I've run workshops where we're doing design thinking for your life. I have done, I taught my son design thinking, although that's not what we called it, um, because I needed him to get better at writing. It's not one size fits all. You have to figure out what is the need of your organization or your product or your experience and say, what parts of this do I need to apply to what we're doing, okay? Um, the key tenets of this thing does not change. There's always going to be some sort of research. There's always gonna be a def definition. We're always gonna brainstorm. We're always gonna prototype. We're always gonna test but how you do that may look very different from one company to the next. Design thinking is not just for UI or business. Um, I find myself talking about it in this way and uh, it's something that I'm working through, but it's just easier to talk about design thinking when we're talking about a screen or we're talking about an app, right? It becomes a little bit disconnected when I say things like experiences, because if you don't go into the world looking for how all of these pieces come together, then you don't even think about it. Um, one of my favorite things to do is just go and visit different structures. So building specifically. So if you ever get down to Dallas um, and you go over to Jerry's World, aka AT&T Stadium, it is the epitome of design thinking. The building itself is the epitome of design thinking. Everything you do from before you get to that building to when you leave is intentionally thought out, okay? Other examples I would use, Disney World, okay? 
how you move from the airport, from the parking lot to your gate at an airport. When you order online and you pick up in store, these are all experiences that were designed for you. When you take your kids to the park, that experience was designed for you. So um, it's easy to get caught up in design thinking for UI or a screen, but it really is intentionally designing an experience for a person on and off the screen. Design thinking, y'all, is not like screwing in a light bulb. And I, I picked this one because I was like, what is the easiest thing to do, right, um, for some people? It's not just let me take it out the package and go, okay? It requires strategy, intentionality, skill, practice, empathy, all of these things go into design thinking. I say that because, unfortunately, people like me, make it look so easy that people, you know, some of my stakeholders, they go and just try to do it themselves, okay? Um, the Google Ventures book probably did the same thing. It made it feel like all I have to do is read this book and then I can go be a design thinker or I can go be a facilitator. And that's not the case. Just like with any instrument you've learned, any tool that you use for work, um, any type of a certification you've had to get, it takes time and practice to build up these skills. Design thinking is not, and I will never, ever, ever waver on this point, okay? Design thinking is absolutely pointless if you don't get real feedback from people, okay? So we'll use users, we'll use customers, we'll use stakeholders. If you're designing for your life, we'll include spouses, we'll include children, but if you don't get the perspective of the people that you're trying to impact, then all you did was hang out in a room and move around sticky notes, okay? I am, I, I keep telling people I'm gonna get this shirt made and I'm, I need to get this shirt made. I also don't believe in proxy users. Proxy users are those people. So let's say you're designing a website, okay? Maybe you're an entrepreneur and you go build a website on your own and then you send it to your mom. Hey, mom, check this thing out. She, all she's going to do is tell you it was amazing, okay? She, it wasn't designed for her. She's just impressed that you were able to build something on the, on the internet, right? That's not your user. Nor is your user the receptionist down the hall or a person who used to do this job 10 years ago who might know something about this subject matter. Those are not your users, okay? It has to be the people that you were trying to impact. Um, the other thing is design thinking is not as linear as all of these images that we can find will depict for you, okay? Um, the reason that's important is sometimes people are discouraged or detracted away from design thinking because they think they have to go all the way back to step one, okay? They think that people like me are going to come in and tell them to trash the entire website or app or experience or code and that they'll have to start over. And that's not the case. Um, good research is gonna meet you where you are. Um, if for whatever reason you are ready, you didn't know anything about this, right? And you're just now hearing me talk about it for the first time ever. And you're like, you know what I do? I'm, I've launched this thing, but I might need to ask some people. Absolutely, by all means, you can still go do that. Um, I think it's more like one of those dolls that kind of 
you keep opening layers and you get to what you need and then you put it all back. That's what design thinking should look like. But that wouldn't make pretty pictures, now would it? Lastly, y'all, design thinking is not done. You don't finish design thinking, right? You finish a sprint, you finish um, launch, you finish an overall design, you finish those things, but design thinking is not done simply because once it's done, really all you're doing is getting ready for the next one, okay? If you're going to be competitive, if you have any type of competition, um, if you have anybody who could potentially, you know, my, my boss says, take your lunch. If you have anybody who might be coming for your business, then you don't get to just stop at quote unquote done, okay? You have to continue to make changes. You have to watch the space that you're in to see if anybody is coming up with something different or new. Okay, everybody okay? Drop in the chat, y'all all right? Everybody with me? Yes. Okay, cool. Now, let's talk about what design thinking is, all right? So it is a framework for problem solving and creativity, okay? Um, it means that I'm gonna have some systems in place. I'm gonna have some activities in place. I'm gonna give you a structure for how to do this thing so you don't have to guess. Design thinking consists of activities. Um, we use those to standardize more or less the process. So I can give you an activity that you can take and now customize for yourself, okay? Um, but it draws on and pulls out um, human behavior, makes you aware of human behavior that might disrupt your process. Oh, so speaking of these behaviors, okay, a lot of issues and product development come from us, okay, as people. Um, we have learned from the age of six to be problem solvers. Nobody ever asked us how we were gonna solve problems or taught us how to solve problems. Um, you probably didn't even learn anything about an outline until you know fourth, fifth grade. Um, so you just set out to get things done. You're a doer, okay? Unfortunately, you being a constant doer with not, and not being a thinker will stifle creativity. Um, we also do things like sometimes we're mean to people, Sometimes we don't create a safe space where people can fail and be wrong and ask questions. They feel like they have to know everything. Um, and all of these behaviors, whether it's intentional or unintentional, is going to prevent you from being able to come up with good ideas and execute effectively. Um, design thinking is grounded in user research. And truth be told, this is why I love the methodology so much. Um, user research answers the five W's and an H. Who, what, when, where, why, how, okay? The most important question there to me is always why. Why did something happen, okay? Where do we want these things to happen? Who is this thing for? What is it that they're trying to do? That is quintessential design thinking. Design thinking is about employing empathy, okay? So I gave you the example earlier. If you're going down the highway and you see somebody stuck on the side of the highway, if you don't pull off to take care of them or help them out, 
because you are so focused on what you have to do, then you were just sympathetic and that's cute, but that's not helping anybody, okay? If you want to truly describe yourself as an empath or somebody who is empathetic, you're going to stop what you're doing. You're going to help that person. We're going to fix that problem. Even if that solution deters us from what we're trying to do. All right. So let's talk about those behaviors. Okay. One, making decisions based on assumptions and not facts. Okay. So I can't tell you, I've lost count how many people have told me that um, persons over the age of 70 don't use cell phones. Okay. They don't use, they don't use the internet. They don't have, know how. Y'all, that is a horrible assumption. My mother is 73 and probably sitting in front of both her iPad and her phone right now. Okay. Um, there are people who I also remember back in the day, we were working on a project for Disney and they wanted to ask these kids um, about money. And someone in the room said, kids don't understand money. That is also not true. Because if you have teenagers, if you probably as young as six or eight years old, they know when you get paid, they know if you're gonna pay for the app, they know if you're not, right? So we make these assumptions. Now, had they not asked those questions, they would have gone down a very different path. So the first one is making assumptions, not facts. The second one, y'all, and I, I say this lovingly, I promise you I do, um, but we make decisions sometimes um, out of arrogance, okay? So if you've ever heard any of the following, if we build it, they will come, right? I know that was from a movie, but I've heard people say this in real life in terms of product development. All we have to do is put it out there. It'll be fine. Um, my next personal favorite is we can validate it later. We can do it later. We'll ask later. Oh, we can train that. We can train that. Oh, it doesn't make sense. That's fine. We'll give them a a manual, we'll give them some tool tips, we can train that. Um, or my product is important. Everybody's gonna stop what they're doing. If it's hard, it's fine, they'll figure it out because they really wanna use my products. And then lastly, people think, or sometimes products owners, developers, business even, thinks that customers are forgiving. We're gonna get a second chance at that Apple, right? They're gonna keep coming back to us because they really like us, they really love us. That's fine until somebody comes in better. The next one is, especially in tech, we value tech-tricity, tech-centricity. We like making cool, big things. We like making shiny things. We like making fast things. Sometimes the people that we're designing for don't need any of those, or they're so complicated they can't use any of those. And then lastly, we talked about um, a lot of times we limit or kill creativity. Um, we run with the first idea. We run with the first pretty idea. Um, we don't try to connect with other disciplines. We don't let people poke holes in them. We don't let people ask questions. Um, on the other side, some of us sit and watch people make bad decisions and choose not to say anything, right? That's just as bad. And then sometimes that's a cultural thing. Um, so design thinking is designed to purposely change your viewpoint, broaden your perspective so that you can see the world differently, okay? Um, part of it is realizing that 
you are only an expert of your life. You really can't make decisions for other people without any type of data, without understanding who and what they are. So you're an expert in your life and of your own experiences and your users and your customers. They're the experts in their experience. And they're affected by a lot of things. This is why I say design thinking is never done. They're affected by things like technology, okay? Um, if a machine can do it faster, then we expect it to be faster, right? Knowledge, when you know more, you become dangerous, right? But now I know what my options are. I have higher expectations now. Sometimes your health is a factor. Sometimes your age is a factor. A lot of times where you're getting your information affects what your experience is, your culture, finances, definitely, right? You couldn't have told me that um, ramen noodles was not the best thing for breakfast, lunch, and dinner when I was in college, because that's what I had the money for. I still enjoy my ramen noodles, but you know I'm not doing that all day. Um, your friends, definitely. The environment in which you are, either at work or at home, or the places that you go, definitely affect how you see the world. And then, of course, politics, right? I'm in Texas. I think everything here is political. Okay. So then, in actuality, your experience becomes the lens in which you see the world. It also becomes the lens in which they see the world. So their expectations, their needs, their problems become your business. And if you don't take time to understand that, they will affect your business, okay? So I'm gonna take a slight detour for just a second. I wanna show you a video. Now everybody pay attention. So if you're not looking at the screen, you might want to now. This is an awareness test. How many passes does the team in white make? Go! Okay, so in the chat, tell me how many passes did they make? Drop it in the chat. How many passes did you see? All right, I saw 12, I see 13, okay. All right, so Israel saw it, but what about everybody else? Hold on just a second. The answer is 13. But did you see the moonwalking bear? Who saw the bear? I know Israel saw the bear. Did anybody else see the bear? I'm watching the chat. No, Neha said no, didn't see the bear. So focused on the passing, right? Absolutely, Dave, okay? And here's the thing, and this is why this is so crucial to design thinking and product development, right? It's easy to not see something when you're not looking for that. 
So as a developer, you are focused on getting it done. I just need to get it built. As a designer, you're focused on creating something, right? I need wireframes. I need to build an Figma. I'm focused on getting it done, right? But your perspective is off, right? So you only focus typically on the things that you need to get done, all right? You focus on the things that you feel like you need to get done, okay? And that's the wrong perspective. Here's the other thing now, y'all. Now that you've seen it, you can't unsee it, okay? So if I teach you now about design thinking and I give you an awareness of these things, from here on out, this is all you're going to see, okay? The same for your user. If you put out something bad, that becomes the lens in which they see you. They may not come back to you because they saw that it was a bad experience the first time. Now they have that awareness. You may not get to see them again, okay? All right, so now we talk about perception bias, okay? Um, and I think this is what happens a lot of times in product development, how we do business in general, right? We uh, have perception bias. Okay. We are subjective sometimes. Um, we think that we can just add a couple of data points to what we already know and what we believe, and then that's going to suffice. Okay. Um, and then there's this idea that because you have good intentions, because you may have seen your brother, your mother, your grandmother <laughs> go through these things, whatever the case may be, um, you now believe that you can speak for them right? You have unconsciously made a decision or a connection. You've unconsciously judged them, okay? And now you've removed your space yourself from a place where you can learn. There are a lot of biases. Today. I really enjoy putting together these cards because I didn't realize how many of them there are. Um, there's a link in here. I will share this report out or deck out after, but take a look at those and look and see are you sometimes being biased? Are you unconsciously biased to some of these things? All right. So we have another video. We ready? Everybody watching the screen? All right.
show of hands, how many times have you justified not making a change because you've always done it this way? When was the last time your kids asked you why you did something and the best you had was, it's how we've always done it, right? This is the number one problem that we run into at an enterprise level. People are so accustomed to doing it a certain way. They don't stop to, to look, is there a better way? Is this efficient? Is this filling a need? Are we creating more work for ourselves, right? Because they've always done business this way. This is probably the most impactful bias that I see in any company, big or small, okay? So then what happens if we just ignore that? What happens if we accept this is the way we've always done it? What happens if we accept we don't have time for change? We don't have the money for change. We don't have the culture for change. What happens when you accept that? You become blockbuster video, okay? Um, for everyone, for everyone on the call, um, does anybody not know what blockbuster video is? Um, I got to watch this firestorm from like front row. Um, at the time I worked for Blockbuster Video, I was a store manager for Blockbuster Video. And I remember getting the email that said, Netflix is not a thing. We're not worried about it. People like shopping our stores, okay? When I read the email, I knew nothing about user experience at the time. As a matter of fact, we didn't even call it that then. I think I was still studying to be a teacher. But when I read that email, I said, these people clearly have not been in a store in a long time, okay? Um, on Friday nights, the line was out the door. You would come into the store. You've packed your whole family. You come in. They may or may not have the movie you wanted. Oftentimes, they didn't have the movie you wanted, so you just packed everybody into the store for no reason. You're standing in the checkout aisle. They had candy, like 4 or $5 boxes of candy. Your kids have no choice but to see it, so then they're crying and complaining because they want candy. Um, people get to the front and find out they had late fees. And not just like a little bit of late fee, like 30, 40, $50 worth of late fees. And now they want to fight. And now you have to listen to the person cry and complain about their late fees. Y'all, Fridays and Saturday nights were the worst. Okay. So then here comes Netflix. And Netflix says, we will send you the video to your home. Watch it when you want to. Watch as many as you want to. Send it back. No late fees. Watch it in your own time. We don't even care, right? If you keep it, you keep it. You don't get another one until you send it back. That was the model. And as a matter of fact, when Netflix approached Blockbuster, it was not to take their business. They wanted to be bought, okay? But Blockbuster said, this is the way we've always done it. We don't have to change, okay? Um, we talk about other disruptors, okay? Um, this picture up in the top left of the shoe, Y'all, that is an Airbnb. Whose business did they take? The hotels, right? Because I need to travel with my family and it's not cost efficient for all of us to pile into one room. And I don't wanna have to cook the entire time. I don't wanna have to do these things. I need my family to be able to spread out. Here comes Airbnb. 
not only that, we're going we're gonna to make some really cool experiences. I saw one that was like a cabin, several, I'm sorry, a treehouse. Um, Fabrice took your um, uh, room deodorizers. Uber took your taxi business. We talked about Netflix. DoorDash took your pizza delivery business, okay? And put a lot of restaurants on the map because now they have a way to augment their business, okay? So here's a perfect storm. Here's a problem. So if you are, you have a product, you have an experience, you're starting to see that you have some disruptors. You're starting to see that people are not pleased with your experience. If you're lucky, you have some people like me, and I see Brandon, he's one of the designers that I know here in Dallas. We show up and we get in the room and we say, how do we fix this thing, okay? Um, I think it's helpful to stop and pause and talk about what user experience is. I realize some people aren't familiar with that. So user experience is an umbrella term used to describe things like visual design, okay? What you're actually seeing on the screen, content, which is the words that people use to navigate or talk about that experience, interaction design, which is how they actually, how the screen moves and how they interact, they connect with the actual experience, and then UX research, right? Answering the who, what, when, why, and how for your experiences, okay? Um, user, use, UX research has a lot of different methodologies in it. Um, the ones that you're probably most familiar with is the usability test, where somebody is sitting in a room and then there's a group of people watching them from a uh, double-sided mirror, um, as well as maybe focus groups where a bunch of people get in a room and they talk about something, right? Those are all examples of user research or research methodologies, okay? I covered that because these are the people that should be in these rooms when product owners and developers are making decisions, okay? If, you, if you're sitting in a room and you never see any of these people, chances are you're going off the rails somehow, okay? If there's not one of these people on call, if there's not a consultant, if there's not a friend or something with these skill sets, you're missing major opportunities, okay? So then let's talk about design thinking and agile. And I giggled when I made this slide because um, I don't know y'all's position on this. I don't know of a whole lot of companies who are doing pure agile, right? There's water agile, there's some different version of that. I've seen some other uh, development processes. Regardless of that, let me tell you what design thinking fits. So, um, on the top, I am safe certified. You're probably the only group who cares about that, but I am safe certified. So I, because I wanted to make sure I understood where design and research fit into this process at AT&T, okay? Um, the one below it is probably something that you're more used to. So we have a plan, design, develop, test, deploy, and review, okay? My issue here though, is that typically, Design means designing an execution plan, not the actual interface or the experience, okay? Develop is actually building the plan that you discuss and then testing ends up being something like QA, right? People on your side who know what it's designed to do using it following a protocol, not experience, okay? So for those who are wondering, 
good design thinking should happen pre-phase zero, okay? Pre-phase zero. So that means when you show up to make your plan, research and design, experience design should have already happened, okay? Some of you were probably like, what did she just say? Right, feel a little gut punched a little bit. I'm sorry, I say it lovingly, okay? This is why. Um, when you get to phase zero and you are kicking off your development process, everybody in that room is being paid to go and get it done, okay? That's your goal and it's a good one. We appreciate it. I love the fact that y'all can make things. But then you're building the plane while it's in flight, which is not safe, which is terrifying actually, okay? So design thinking should happen before that planning meeting, before we scope it, before we, any, we do any of those things, okay? And then once you get into your development cycle, you need to continue to make room for going back to the people that you designed it for and making sure it works, okay? So why does this not happen today? One, um, I'm still shocked at the number of people that I meet in these, in these disciplines who have never heard of design thinking, user research, user experience, testing with customers. It is mind boggling that, I, that we're even still having these kind of conversations, okay? I always giggle when I meet UX designers, quote unquote, who call themselves UX designers, but have never put their work in front of a person, right? In a structured setting. It happens all the time. So it's an awareness issue. Next, we have different motivations. So as a researcher, my motivation is to create the best experience possible for that end user, right? My motivation is to make sure that we don't have to have a very expensive support system support organization to fix our design mistakes. My goal is to make sure that we don't have to have a very large customer service to now give credits for the things that we should have caught in our design or development process, okay? Um, again, we all have different motivations, which makes us all really good at our jobs, but those motivations without a clear goal, experiential goal, will put us in direct conflict with each other, okay? Another reason this doesn't happen as much as it should is because um, in the image that I showed you before, we group a whole lot of things under design and development, right? None of them specifically calls out user research, connecting with the people that we design it for, right? Design means a lot of different things to different people. And for most of those, it's not including the person or the humans you're designing things for. Okay? And then the last one is always funny to me. Everybody's like, I thought we did this. Who do you think did it? I don't know. Did you see a report? No. So Casper did it? Like a ghost did it? Who, who did the work? If you, if you haven't seen it, right? You didn't ask questions. Why would you think it had already happened? Because it should happen, obviously. Right, but where's your proof? Okay. Um, 
especially in agile, we say things like, oh, we'll just fail fast and we'll make changes as we go, right? Um, we'll get a chance, just add it to the tickets, add it to tickets, make a user story for it. We'll come back to it, we'll come back to it, okay? But then you run into something that looks like this. I don't know how many people have seen it. I think every presentation I give, every presentation has this slide in it, okay? So on the left, we have all the things that we dream of, right, in the beginning, right? It's gonna have titanium everything. I tell people the lady on the front is Beyonce, the hologram, she comes out and she sinks you a takeoff and landing, right? We know that it's gonna be everything. But if we do like we did on the last slide, we find a problem, we don't fix it, we just push it to the end. We'll push it to the end. We'll ask them later, we'll do it later. Then what happens, you run out of money, you run out of time, you run out of resources, okay? This is what happened. You didn't have a plan to accommodate for it. You probably wasted a lot of time on things that weren't really necessary because then when you go to what the user actually needs, they just really needed a cool bike. Y'all, you could have put streamers on it and wowed them, but you spent time making what you wanted to make. You didn't validate it throughout the process. You kept going, you ran out of steam, and really you could have just done something like the image on the right, okay? All right, so y'all, here's the fun facts, okay? And I told you I'm approaching this out of love, okay? Reality of it is no matter what you are working on, it will be tested by a person, okay? It will be. Hands down, not a question. Somebody's going to use it, which essentially means they're going to test it, okay? Everybody agree? We there? Y'all agree? It will be tested. And it could fail. It could fail bad. It could fail horribly bad, okay? What do I mean by horribly bad? Um, Y'all remember Google Glass? Remember Google Glass? Google Glass was a pretty cool concept, okay? Google Glass, you could put on these glasses and it took us to the world of the future where you could look at things, see what they were. You could Google it while you're looking at it. So it's picking up what you see. It Googles it. It tells you how you can order it. It tells you where to get it. It tells you how much it costs. All of these things are happening right there in your face, right? How many people have seen Google Glass in the world, in the wild? Not many of you, okay? Not many of you. Why? Because they're sitting in warehouses because they were made, they exist. They're sitting in warehouses because they tried to sell them and they couldn't. They scared the hell out of people, okay? Scared the hell out of people. Because now I could be really excited about this technology, right? I could be stoked about this technology as the consumer, but I'm sitting in a restaurant with people who are like, wait, is that thing undressing me with its eyes, right? Are you Googling me as a person? Do you now have somehow have access to my personal information? It scared them so bad, Google had to stop selling them. They're sitting in a warehouse, okay? Right. So here's the thing, this is what we could do. 
I, I titled this one specifically for this group, how to fail quickly and quietly, because I know you're going to continue doing that. I think it's a really good thing. I love the agile development process when it's done accurately, okay? Um, so how do we fail fast but quietly, right? First of all, my, my word disappeared. Anyway, we conduct upfront research, okay? So pre-phase zero, before we go in and we start scoping features and we start trying to figure out how much it's gonna cost and we figure out what resources we need, first we need to understand what do we need to build, right? Can I get away with this really cool bike, right? That's where we start. Next, we focus on the end user, okay? So you brainstorm solutions that are gonna solve the problems that you identified from the research, okay? Now, as part of that brainstorming and refining process, we do get to talk about things like feasibility. We do get to talk about things like business goals. Those things get to help refine those ideas, but they should all start from the end user perspective, all right? Next, we need to build in iterative testing. So going back to, um, you know, whichever product development phase or uh, kind of framework you choose, there should be <clears throat> touch points where you take what you have and you go back to the participant or the user or the person, the customer, whatever the case may be. You should take touch points and go do that. Now, what I typically recommend to my clients is just a UX day, okay? So I have one client every third Thursday of the month, whatever they've developed to that point, I'm going to take it into research on that Thursday. We're going to interview five to eight people. I'm going to turn around, give them a bulleted list of things to change. And then they're taking that into their next sprint. It's intentional. Everybody knows it's going to happen. From a research ops perspective, we prepare for that. We pre-recruit, but we know it's going to happen and they've built it into their process. Okay. I'm going to skip around just a little bit. Um, we need to give research its own budget, right? Own action items own, and tie it to the overall development plan, okay? I say that because when we bundle it, right, under design, under development, and everybody doesn't get the memo, then it doesn't happen because somebody assumes that it happened somewhere else or they don't know to do it right? And then the last one is my favorite. We all have to take accountability, okay? So this is how I typically start workshops. Everyone who benefits from the success or lack of success, or I guess success, everyone who benefits from the success of a product, meaning you get paid to do this work, you are responsible for user experience you are responsible for asking questions to make sure that that work is getting done. Because the worst thing that could happen to you is that everybody as an organization continues to track through. Nobody stops to make sure that you're doing things that people want and need and helping them solve a goal. And then all you're doing is waiting for a Netflix. You're waiting for an Uber. You're waiting for one of our kids to come in and say, there's a better way to do that and come up with a different way. Okay, that's what breeds competition. So as a person in any of these experiences, as a, the designer, 
the developer, the researcher, the product owner, hell, even the, the lead customer service people. Making sure that that experience is right is everybody's responsibility, okay? Mm. All right, so I will stop now and ask questions. So I didn't keep up with the questions in the chat. So I don't know if somebody did or if I can take a second to kind of scan through them or if you just want to kind of ask the question openly. I think there's been a very interesting conversation going on in the chat. And um, I think it will be nice for us to just go back and look at them and make sure we answer questions. I see Jody's hand. Jody, you can go ahead as we scroll through the questions. Okay, awesome. I asked mine way earlier. So, um, so how do we approach leadership that's disconnected from the values you're talking about? Is it possible to open them up to this approach? Um, so I think your quote was, we watch people make bad decisions and don't say anything. All right, I'm in a situation. So what if those making the bad decisions are not open to feedback? In fact, if we bring it up, we will have our head bitten off. What do we so, do? Yeah, so, and that's an excellent question. This is what I learned very early on in my career. I'm going to let a user or a customer speak for me, okay? So if there is time, if you have access to customers at all, or if you have access to reviews, because I know sometimes you can't interview a person. If you were to compile two or three interviews with those people sharing their frustrations and now bringing it to life, you share that with leadership. So it's not you, Jody. It's not as Jody, I'm telling you these things are wrong. It is, this is what we've heard our customers say and how might this impact our business? And is this a risk that you want to take? That's how I would- Approach that absolutely. I I tell people all the time there is no better commercial or um, inspiration for design thinking or user research than listening and watching one of your customers struggle. Right? If I can get a cuss word out of them, even better. But as you're looking at this and you're, I if this one person is struggling with that. Do we have all these other people struggling with that? And is this something that we can fix? So that's where I would start. Thank you. Okay. We also had, um, I think it was a comment by Israel and it says not really a question, just wanted to share and see if others are in the same situation and pushing for reaching out to customers and get feedback, but main stakeholders are afraid and the customer perception of the company as an industry leader would somehow become tarnished if we ask customers for feedback. So we get into this catch 22 where we need customer feedback after releasing a new update, but don't ask much because they, the customers may think we don't know what we're doing. So yeah. Maybe, yeah. Oh my goodness. I love this one. So this is what we do. Okay. So one, let's think about the other places people might go to if they have a problem. Okay. So when I think about my KPIs and how I want to impact business, the very first person I go to is the people who run your support organization. Because if there are things that your customers don't like, 
you're going to see an uptick in complaints. You're going to see an uptick in failed conversions. You're going to see an uptick in, ch in chatter in general. Okay. So I would go talk to the people who run your support organizations, and I would say, what, what, are, what are people struggling with? Right. What types of things are we having to constantly reiterate? Right. And what is it costing us? So if you're in a support organization, you're in customer service. I know one company I'm thinking about, AT&T specifically. When I was at AT&T, their business, y'all, is it's a lot. It's a lot. And most of it runs off of Excel spreadsheet. Don't quote me on that. I'm, I'm being bitter. But um, I was in a situation where I needed to understand why trucks were being rolled out for very mundane reasons, right? Like somebody didn't realize that their um, CPU was disconnected from the internet. Because the problem is every time one of those trucks rolled, it cost the company $750 every single time. So then I wanted to ask, but what customers do I pinpoint for that, right? And then to your point, can we even ask the question, does the customer know? Long story short, no, they didn't. So what did I do? I went and sat over at the customer support office where the agents are taking calls all day and just listened. And then I interviewed the agents and let them tell me the story. And that's the story we took back to leadership, which then turned into, how about you go ride in the truck with, with the technicians, right? And then I'm out there with the technicians and the customers, and I'm able to collect stories that way. Ultimately, they did make the changes, but it is kind of looking at it differently. If I can't go directly to the customer, let me find the person or the organization who is closest to the customer. Okay. Did that help answer your question? Yes, thank you. And definitely that's that's one of the uh, my approach that I'm taking right now. So I, I got access now to customer feedback whenever they fill uh, a feedback form. Mm -hmm. uh, so one of the things that I'm doing right now is taking that data and making sure that I put numbers behind it, but also making sure that I have the associated cost of that issue. So that can have a better effect on, on the stakeholders when I can tell them, you know, X amount of people are going through this issue and it's costing us this amount of money because customer service has to take time to troubleshoot the issues or whatever. Yep. That, in my opinion, I think is going to have a bigger effect uh, and it's going to help stakeholders to prioritize the, um, the issue um, when they can see how much money is actually costing to the company. Um, sometimes if I tell them, you know, the customer experience is not as good as it could be because, you know, we have all these different friction points that can slow down the customer and they're like, well, yeah, we know, but how many people are complaining? How much yeah. is that costing to the company? So when you put those numbers behind the data, I think it's a little bit more difficult for them to say, yeah, forget about it. Yep, I agree. Um, the other thing you can do is if you don't have a support organization and if, if it's a B2C type of a business, right, or you're an entrepreneur, then I would go look at customer reviews and ratings, right? Yeah. Um, just know the information is cute a little bit because happy people don't typically write a review, right? Somebody who is angry is more likely to write a review unless you're, it was just astronomical. But you can also learn from that. Right. So where are, where are the opportunities in my business? You'll absolutely get that from social media. 
um, and then starting to look at the way your um, your competitors talk about their business, right? Because if they were good at what they do, then they found your weaknesses. And now they're touting that as something special about their product. So you can look at all of those different ways until you make a case to talk to an actual end user. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that I like to do is I like to go undercover into these online forums that you know are for <laughs> our industry. And then, you know, kind of talk to them and like, hey, what do you think about this company? And you know, what about the things that they did? And people are sometimes willing to tell you a lot of things and you can learn a lot of things on the forums. And but sometimes to your point, yeah, sometimes that, that information, um, you have to take it with a grain of salt. It can be a little bit skewed. <laughs> You sound like you and I would get along. I am all about this whole Rico type data collection. I love it. I love it. It's so fun sometimes. <laughs> sometimes it's like it's so it's so, it's so fun to to go on the cover, right? Like, hey, what do you think about this company? Like, oh, they're horrible. Like, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, I love it. Okay. Uh, we have Brandon. I think Brandon has had his hand up for a while. Hey, yeah. Can you guys hear me? Yes. Hey, Brandon. Hey, how's it going, Adrian? Good. How are you? I'm wonderful. I'm wonderful. Thanks. Always good to, to hear you and get some insight from you, man. So um, kind of a question I just had, and I posted it earlier in the chat was, and you kind of, I think, touched on it a little bit, was just how do you separate or kind of prioritize your users' needs versus like marketing needs or, or the business needs? Kind of how do you get to that sweet spot and still be advocating for your users and their needs. Absolutely. So I don't think that it's a separation of needs, right? Um, so especially for marketing, I think in a lot of ways we try to, while marketing and UX are very different in terms of discipline, we still all trying to get to the same thing, right? We want to create a product and entice people to buy our thing, right? So they really shouldn't be different. The question comes in around feasibility, right? How we get that, that may differ between UX marketing and the business. So you, you kind of have to do this a couple of ways. One, you need to make sure that everybody is focused on creating the best experience and product for the end user, right? And I think a lot of times we fail to get that buy-in. So looking at some of the conversations that we're having here in the chat, for some of us, it just seems like it's just common sense, right? If we have a problem, we fix it. But we don't have an awareness of all these other things as to why we may not be able to fix it. So if we take a step back and let's say, do we all agree this is a problem, right? Do we all agree we want to fix this? Let's make the focus. We want to make the best experience and then figure out how we can do that. So I talked about in that ideation phase, we brainstorm and then we refine. As part of that refinement process is when we start to look at things like feasibility or issues or budget. Can we do these things? And what may come from that conversation is I can't get to North Star, but I can come real close to it. Or I know North Star should be part of my roadmap for the future, but how close can I get? And then how do we get to the future? It may be, Brandon, that you just accept everybody's not going to win. But if we've all aligned on, we want to make the 
best experience that we can right now, then it should at least be making forward progress. Absolutely, thank you. Mm -hmm. Okay. I think I have my hands up next. Okay. Yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> hey, Adrian. Hey, uh, how do we make sure that human-centered design is is highly emphasized in in UX research and even UX design? The easiest way is start asking for it, right? So when you are in a meeting and people are making decisions, the question that everybody should be asking is, "How do we know that's the right decision? How did we get here?" Right? Who did we talk to? Did we do any kind of research? Right? That should be step one for everybody, especially developers. You giving me a plan, how do we know that this is even the right direction we should be going in? And that conversation and that question should be happening whenever decisions are being made. So I would start with asking. Some other things that I've seen and <clears throat> what this looks like, at least here that I've seen in Dallas. Okay. And I realize this is being recorded, so I'm going to choose my words. Um, the other thing that I've seen is we went to, and these companies, they're cyclical this way. They went to, let's create a center of excellence for UX, right? Let's make it its own organization. Let's put a whole bunch of people in it. Let's create a bunch of champions to do the work. That has worked. But we weren't really good at operations the first couple of times we tried this. So we didn't do things like, what is the value of this organization? We weren't really good at assigning resources and things like that. So on one hand, I think as those types of organizations due to their size and the amount of people they were able to touch and these champions that they created, they grew the overall awareness. The execution just wasn't that great. Um, but short answer to your question is just start making it part of the conversation, right? And ask the question, do we have resources? Who do I reach out if I want to know more about X, Y, and Z? And it may at that time just be an awareness issue. Oh, you know what? We don't know. And then the follow-up question, do we want to make a multi-million dollar decision off of an assumption or a guess? I tell you, at and does this shit all the time. But do we want to? Do we want to do that with our money? Okay. All right. Okay. Thank you. Mm -hmm. I think when we look at the chat, we don't have any more questions, but the conversation was really interesting and very engaging. And uh, for now, looking at the time, I think uh, would like to say a big thank you to Adrian for this very interesting and uh, thought-provoking. Uh, uh, talk. If we could continue, I didn't even realize two hours is gone by so quick. So very interesting conversation. Uh, for those that want to reach out to Adrian, um, her contact details are on the screen. And I will take it back to Dr. Day for a couple of announcements, and then we can enjoy the weekend. Yeah, um, Adrian, and, and thank you so much for giving your time today. This is a great session. I was really pleased. You know, I love this topic a lot. Um, so thank you for being here, and thank you, thank you for sharing your knowledge and wisdom with us. And um, thank you, everyone, else for for also showing up today uh, to join. Um, I have a few announcements. 
um, about and, and so you want to continue yeah I, I'm gonna share if I could find it yeah there you go share share my screen just a quick presentation just um, letting everyone know what's coming right um, so our next meetup is Saturday November 12th we're gonna have uh, Kevin Callahan here um, as you can see we, we try to be as diverse as possible bring all sort of different concepts and knowledge to our community so that we could grow um, so he's going to talk about organizational change um, as an individual choice. So it'd be interesting to see and hear, you know, what he has to say about that. Right? Got OCM is big, and it's just another big topic, kind of like design thinking. Um, that that's really um, important for us to understand as well. So our next AFH meet meetup, and just stay tuned. It's coming up the twelfth, and so I have some announcements. My personal announcement is that I have two books uh, just recently released called Belonging and Healing, um, and then also Deliver Value. Um, so I'll put those out. Um, you can get those books um, on those websites or through Amazon uh, as well. Um, more more um, what I call shameless plug for myself, which is terrible, but which is good. Um, probably next month, I'm going to do a book tour, do a virtual book tour. And so I'll be... Yeah, you know, speaking about the books and concepts that that are in both books. So um, another opportunity for you to tap in. So just stay tuned for that as well. Um, what, what I normally do is I take this recording and I post it everywhere. So it will be an Agile Alliance, it'll be on all of my websites and all of the channels that I use. But one of the things is I put it back out on my podcast as well. Um, so, you know, everything that we do has a global reach. And so, you know, we'll take this podcast and make sure make sure that this is uh, one of the episodes for the podcast. And it also gets distributed through um, our newsletter as well. So just giving you more information um, that, that's out there. You know, so my podcast is on maybe about 30 or so channels. But, you know, these are the top that everyone really pay attention to in most cases anyway. Um, so just information to stay tuned uh, to, to what's coming up. And um, we'll, we'll be making an announcement for when our actual conference is in February. You know, it's during Black History Month. And, and so um, this is the thing we've been doing for the last several years. And we, we hope to continue to do that for many more. And so stay tuned. What is the importance of belonging? And why do we all need to belong somewhere? It is built into our human nature. Learn how the powerful philosophy of Ubuntu helps to deliver a simple roadmap to building positive teams and relationships, improving engagement and performance. Get your copy of Belonging and Healing, Creating Awesomeness for Yourself and Others by Dr. Dave Cornelius on Amazon.com. Let's talk about talk, it. Talk, talk, talk. Let's go deep. We all have some to share. No, no share with Dr. Dave.